There is an adage that says, if you don't succeed, try, try again. But what happens if you do succeed? Do you continue to succeed again and again? Blake Johnson has the distinction of being one of those guys who seems to turn everything he touches into gold. A visionary and a serial founder, Blake built his companies to over a billion dollar valuation. In fact, it doesn't seem to matter the industry. Whatever Blake sets his mind on becomes the next big thing. I'm Mike Keating, and welcome to Zero to Unicorn, where we dive into the lives of the unique visionaries among us that have made a billion dollar impact in the world. Blake Johnson has done some amazing things, like building his company to over a billion dollar valuation. But how does a journey like his begin? In 2005, I became an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I was asked to join a company and, and they made me an offer that was that seemingly at the time almost too good to be true, which I, I diverted my plans and, and joined up with a company in, in a 50% equity stake in a relatively small uh, finance company in Los Angeles. And I really could have cut my teeth throughout all that. Um, but most importantly, we had this crazy trajectory in 2006 and seven and being a finance company at the end of 08 and 09 got kicked in the teeth. And I always say it was really starting in 2009. I started my, my learning and, and business career, even though, you know, the company had done really well prior to that, we had such strong tailwinds. Um, that we were doing well. And I look back at that, we were doing well and not really knowing why we were doing well. It was right place, right time. But you know, as, as somebody wisely once said, when the tide goes out, you see who's wearing pants. It was one of these things that, uh, and starting in 09, I got, I got religion on what companies were doing well and what companies weren't and why respectively each, each were doing so and became kind of a student of, of business fundamentals and really understanding what constitutes strong, strong businesses. The accidental entrepreneur? That's not what I've heard before. Of course, I had to ask Blake to expand on this a little. Come out of school in the late nineties out of, out of college and had taken a job uh, at a, at a, the 800 pound gorilla in the industry. I was hired with, uh, with uh, dozens and dozens of other guys and women uh, that did my job. Um, fresh out of school, you know, had, had the rose colored glasses on, got hired in a sales capacity, which meant I had to go prospect and find businesses that needed money and basically kind of negotiate the deals and the legal terms and the credit and everything else. It was a pretty grueling job, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day, extremely high turnover. I was hired in a class of 60 people at the end of the first year, there was only two of us left and at the end of the second year, I was the only one left. But I did really well with the job. I always say it came from a farming community. I always kind of joke that I brought the blue collared work ethic to the white collared environment. But the real trick on that was that I was able to figure out deals, inbound deals that were coming through the receptionist and cut a deal with the receptionist to get all the leads. And it really like catapulted my career. And, you know, I came out of 18 months into the into the job, I became the highest producer in the company, which, you know, competing with guys that have been doing it for a decade plus and had big books of business, uh, people were, were kind of turning their heads, trying to figure out what I was doing, but subsequently stayed at that company for a number of years. It was a great training ground. I learned a tremendous amount about corporate finance and credit underwriting and legal and sales and the whole gamut. And so I had plans to you know, I had plans to go off to grad school in the Bay Area in California. And as I was exiting the company, it, it made, you know, news within the industry. I was 27 years old at the time. And a company out of Los Angeles approached me to help consult them in my transition. I subsequently did. The CEO is very charming and persistent. And over the course of a few months, finally got to the place where he said, you know, I want you on. What's it going to take? I had no plans to, to a join a, a relatively small company, but be eject from the, from the grad school, uh, path. 
And to almost make him go away, I said, 50% of the equity of your company, thinking he was going to tell me to kick rocks and we'd be done with it. And three days later, he came back and said, I thought about it, willing to do it. And so I became an accidental entrepreneur. Um, I, I started full-time a few months after that on January 1st, 2005. I was very good at the revenue side and generating revenue um, uh, within these types of companies. They were doing an average run rate of about $5 million. We got it up to about $100 million within 18 months. I would argue it was a good good uh, trade for him, good for me. Um, but also we were at the, you know, I always give the analogy, that company was a beautiful Ferrari, you know, but when you opened up the hood, there was there was two sick mice in a hamster wheel, meaning, you know, we, we made a lot of money, but, you know, fundamentally we didn't have the right business metrics and the right mindset to really grow a business beyond that. And so when the tides quickly shifted, and for us, that was at the Q4 of 2008. The company was not positioned well to withstand any kind of turbulence and, you know, really get through what subsequently was the next two years of, of grueling, you know, labor. My my business partner ejected from the company. Um, he called me one day and said, I'm not coming back. Let's file bankruptcy. I said, ah, you know, from a small town, that's not really kind of how we approach things. I'm not willing to walk away from all the commitments um, that we, and we were committed, you know, both personally and, and corporately uh, from a corporate standpoint, you know, pretty deep. And so he, he left, never came back. And I, I did a, what constituted a two year workout on, on the business successfully at the end, got down to my last $7,000 to my name, um, but pulled it off. And most, most importantly, didn't leave anybody high and dry, which really later came back to, to benefit me um, in later years because the, a lot of the banks have a long memory and they knew I did right by everybody and were willing to you know, grant me certain permissions in the years to come that they weren't normally doing for anybody you know, because I, I kind of stood tall during the tough times. But I really, really, such a painful experience going through that swore that I would never be in that situation again. And, you know, the blessing at the time for me was that it was unable to raise money to bail our, ourselves out. And I was left, you know, to my own ingenuity and own kind of grit and persistence to figure out a solution. And because of that, you know, really got sober and, and got religion on, on the fundamentals of business and what constitutes strong businesses and why businesses last and can grow. Subsequently, you know, I took those learnings to the next company and the next company after that, each, each time learning more and more. And each time, you know, kind of building upon that and leveraging the position up and the learnings up to the next one. And, you know, currency was, was a huge success prior to Byte. Um, but really was, was sober on, on all that. But that receptionist story doesn't end there. I know there is more to this story. In fact, I heard that the CEO found out about their arrangement. Yeah, sure. It was a CEO. And so I've always kind of, I've always taken the philosophy of uh, do the, the, the hard work and, and learn to do the hard work and enjoy the hard work, but also try to figure out the areas that are often overtimes overlooked of opportunity along the way. I learned that early on and working on the feedlot, having to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and, and working cattle all day in 120 degree heat, my hometown of El Centro, California. And that's a good, that's a great story as well, how I learned that. But to answer your question and, and to address the topic, you know, I, I was banging my head, making 300 cold calls a day and asking myself on a daily basis, what can I do or what can I create to shortcut the process. And I realized that, you know, the, the company at the time had such a big brand and a lot of the, a lot, it was generated a lot of inbound traffic unsolicited or prop probably, you know, generated from some awareness of the, these small businesses uh, in the years past, but businesses were calling in without an account rep associated with it. And the receptionist was sprinkling out the, the calls to all the reps. In a, in a very uniform way. 
And I noticed that, you know, a lot of the reps were taking these leads and not doing much with them. They didn't have the skill set nor kind of desire to kind of persist through and, and do the things. And so, you know, one day I, I approached her and asked her to have a have a beer at the, you know, at the local pub after after work. And I pitched her the idea. I said, look, you're you're farming out all these leads. How can we get these all coming to me? And we came, you know, over the course of probably a few more beers and maybe a tequila shot, we came to an agreement and that, that went really well. Started, you know, business started to pick up for me dramatically and then she got fired. So then I had to go to the next receptionist, cut the same deal. She got fired, so on and so forth. So I'm now on years later onto my fifth receptionist. And as I approached the fifth receptionist, the fifth receptionist went to the CEO of the company and said, you know, here's what Blake propositioned me with. And of course, I got called in shortly thereafter. The CEO was not happy at all. And I think he had plans to maybe, if not severely discipline me, fire me on the spot. And I, and he, as I was, you know, being read the riot act, it was, it was the scene out of, you know, full metal jacket. I felt like I was one of the, one of the guys in there being yelled at by the drill sergeant. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh, sir? No, sir. I stopped him and I said, you know, his name was Sean. I said, Sean, do you know how lucky you are that I did this for your company? And he paused, you know, steam coming out of the ears. And I explained to him that had I not done this, those leads would have gone to all these other people and not closed it at a high enough rate and not injected enough margin into the deals and so forth and so on. He paused and he said, get out of my office. So I went back to my office and was kind of sitting there for an hour or so. And his assistant came in very coldly, very quietly and said, for now on, you don't have to pay for any of the leads anymore. They're yours indefinitely. And she just turned around and walked out and I never had to pay for leads again, you know, throughout my kind of tenure with the company, it was just the, the main recipient of all these leads. So, you know, it worked out. I, I, I do believe to this day, I was, I was creating a win-win for all parties. I love that. Blake is one gutsy individual. And I don't know if I could bet my career on a move like that. But that's what makes Blake so unique, so special. It's his tenacity. But I needed to know, what was it that Blake was doing so differently? You know, I, I've thought about that a lot. And, you know, even, even with my own companies here in Los Angeles, I've hired over 10,000 people um, through the subsequent number of companies. And, and so, you know, for, for writer, for better, for worse, you grew, you grow, a, a, you know, pretty strong opinions on who's going to do well and who's not. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what factored in for me and what factors in for a lot of other people you see this with is just persistence. Persistence is a, is a key and having to prove something, a little bit of a chip on the shoulder, you know, that, that age old term of grit, however you want to define that. But it, you know, at the end of the day, it's not having a place to retreat to, you know, when, because we hired so many people out of college and, and relatively you know, early on in their careers, you can smell pretty early on if it doesn't work out for them at whatever job this is, what are they going to go back to? And if their, their retreat position, whether it be parents or a spouse that maybe it makes money or whatever it is, if that's an easy thing to go back to, when times become tough, when push comes to shove, it's human nature. You're going to go back to it. And these great, you know, these great outcomes and great achievements take getting kicked in the teeth a number of times. And, you know, my family, my dad says this, my kids say this, we just keep shoveling. You know, you got to keep shoveling. Um, I was funny, it, it, you know, I, I think that came from my dad early on. He's a, he's a cattle rancher and you know you just got to keep going and then recently i was watching something online and i saw ronald reagan uh tell a joke during his presidency he's like you just got to keep shoveling there's a pony in there somewhere so you know we we kind of have that but that that persistence and and just the belief that you know there's a solution um is i think really critical 
and 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 wanting the desired outcome whatever that is you know if, if you know you see it in athletics you see it in business you see it in, in any industry in any career but the the folks that ultimately got to get to the top of the heap and and have those storied careers and outcomes that everybody wants the common denominator is they were just focused and persistent and wouldn't accept another alternative and when roadblocks came when hurdles came they have that ability to to look at it and say there's what's the way around this how can i overcome this stumbling block and keep on going well wait a second blake just said that he had a ranch experience you can't just gloss over that when we're talking about a billion dollar journey i just had to ask what was that experience like the experience of being a cattle rancher and what were the lessons taken from the feedlot all the way to the border? Sure. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was like I said. My my dad uh, is in is in the industry. At an early age, he thought it was good. I hated it at the time, but he thought it was appropriate around 12, 13 years old that I go work for a, another feedlot. And the feedlot is. Uh, people say a cattle ranch. Cattle ranches sound romantic, romantic and sexy. A feedlot is the exact opposite. It's horrid. And so I was getting picked up by an old cowboy, Fred Crook, from Wyoming, down in my hometown of El Centro, California, and at 3.05 in the morning. And every day I wasn't in school. And so he would drive out. I had to start work at 4 a.m. during the summers and a little bit later during the winters. But And it was it was hot. El Centro is one of the hottest places. It would routinely hit 120 plus. And, you know, and it's predominantly the, the, the it's, you know, predominantly 97% Hispanic. And so, you know, growing up down there with, you know, being the only one with blue eyes around was not exactly easy. You know, it, it was, uh, there was no favoritism, quite the opposite um, for, for, uh, for a guy with blue eyes. And so I knew that and going into the first year, I got relegated to the worst of worst jobs, which accounted to taking a five gallon, you know, empty paint bucket and scooping out the troughs and the troughs, you know, were, were a, you know, combination of about 50% water, 25% urine, 25% feces because the cattle would jump in these troughs and stand in there to cool off all day. So I would just throw a, a a net over my head to keep out the flies and scoop out eight hours a day troughs. And there was 117 troughs. And I got it starting Monday morning. I got done, you know, it took me all day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and half of Friday to get through the 117. And it, I, I mean, it, and no joke, Mike, I, I could come back from work and my Wrangler jeans would stand up by themselves. You know, and my white Hanes t-shirt was black. And so I just kept to myself. I just kept working, kept shoveling. And the the crew is about 30 Mexican guys. The vast majority were, were coming over, cr crossing the border from Mexicali, you know, 10 miles to the south. And, you know, they kind of finally took a liking to me the second year. And I knew I made it when I got invited to lunch, which was at 8 a.m. in the morning right the first the first time and so you know i just kind of quietly sat there and they would cook whatever they killed that that morning whether it be a rattlesnake or on a good days you know a little calf would die and they would cut it up and um and so forth and so on and so one of the days you know i don't remember when but the manager came over and he, he asked me he goes blake if you were me and you had to pick one of these guys and the whole group was over there um, to do the job, like to the best of my satisfaction, do it the most intelligent way, who would you pick? And I, I knew these guys pretty well. And I said, I'll pick, you know, that guy. And he's like, why would you pick him? I'm like, well, he's kind of the natural leader and he's always at work on time. He works really hard and da, 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 da. I give him kind of a feel good list and he shakes his head and starts walking away. And I'm like, hold on, who would you pick? Keep in mind, everybody was to my right, and there was one single guy, and it was a character out of movie. This guy was, you know, huge, right, and dirty. And this, there was a guy sleeping under a, a little tree, taking a nap in the dirt. He's like, I'd pick that guy. 
I said, why the hell did you pick that guy? He goes, that guy is so lazy that his brain works in a different way. He had, and then he started to name up all of these inventions that were particular to this feedlot from a pulley system to move bales of hay to a siphon system to, to cheat the system that I'd been doing with the bucket. I was like, why the hell did you not tell me about the siphon system a year ago? You know, to, to suck out all the manure and crap from the, from the water troughs and so forth and so on. And I remember that distinctly. And then as he's walking away again, he goes, look, in your life, if you work like the guy you picked and think like the guy I picked, you're going to do well in life. And so I've always tried to kind of keep that in mind. And it's really been the catalyst and the genesis for, for a lot of things that I've subsequently invented or, or tried to work out case in point, the elite system. Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? Invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank? This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. That's just fantastic. What an attitude to take and one that stayed with Blake all of this time. Now, moving on, I wanted to jump to the next company in Blake's illustrious career, a company which he took from a $5 million valuation all the way to $100 million. Yes, you heard me correctly, a $100 million valuation. That doesn't happen accidentally. So how does one make that a reality? We did that. I mean, if you think about revenue generation in any company, right? The the key to revenue generation is is marketing. You know, it's it's how many eyeballs, how frequent, you know, can you get your product in front of somebody and the subsequent close rates and conversion rates of those theoretical eyeballs. And so a lot of companies have that in mind. It's more difficult to do it within a financial parameters where that cost per acquisition, the CAC, the CPA. Uh, the customer acquisition cost, customer, you know, unicorn, whatever you want to define it as fits within your metrics. And so early on, I kind of got really sober that how can you get more eyeballs and how can you get more people interested in your products? And so what we ultimately devised in there and in that first company, which took it, you know, from in such a dramatic fashion, 20X of revenue within 18 months was rooted in marketing. And in this particular case, we were soliciting business loans from the small to medium-sized businesses and industries, you know, far and wide within the U.S. And we devised the methodology to where we had a marketing piece. It was an actual credit card that was sent out, you know, to 9 million businesses a year offering them lines of credit and encouraging them to call in based to activate the credit card in a direct mail fashion, direct mail. It, it kind of got out of, it was out of, or out of style, so to speak. And we brought it kind of back in and, you know, there was so many in particular small details on how we treated those leads and how we got those leads convert, but we were now able to canvas the U S in a much more dramatic fashion um, than we had traditionally done through outreach and cold calls and warm calls and you know vendor relationships of these bigger institutional companies that sold large equipment like John Deere or some of the medical equipment companies or kitchen equipment companies, et cetera, et cetera. So really it was rooted in, in a, a very good marketing piece. That doesn't happen accidentally. So how does that happen? You know, we had 
and, and even through my old company, I'd seen a them try a lot of things. Um, and we, I always kind of had this idea about direct mail. I actually tried to bring it to the, my first company and nobody really was really got excited about it. Um, but when it kind of had, you know, my own path to run, we started small and watched, you know, the conversion and then doubled it. It's still converting the same, doubled that again, doubled that again, you know, so it was exponential growth. And we, we really maintain that as long as our conversion percentages help. With results as outstanding as these, I needed to know, did Blake try a number of marketing initiatives or did he just strike gold out of the gate? With, with CapNet, we were doing very well. The marketing piece was working. We were able to hire the people to field sales calls, hire the credit analysts, hire the funders. Um, thing, it, it was gale force wind and not only our backs, but the, the backs of, of everybody in the industry. And at the end of 2008, unbeknownst to us, and we were pretty much a middleman. We were this, you know, taking money from big institutional banks at a, and we're buying it for a specific cost, finding the customers and selling it for a cost higher than that, and then making the spread in the margin ourselves. Unbeknownst to us at the time, these bigger institutional banks were having severe problems. And at the end of 2008, the credit facilities on an on a industry-wide scale did not get approved. People were you know, feeling a lot of pain in, in the financial markets. And these banks, instead of saying, okay, we're going to continue to participate in 2009, said, we're going to sit this quarter out, or now subsequent two quarters. Or, and that was in the best case scenario. Some of them were performing so poorly, they had to close their own doors. But we had a, a tremendous amount of demand for our product. The businesses still needed money. We did not have supply. And when we didn't have supply, you know, that really, you know, turned us upside down. So I had hundreds of employees at the time, um, big offices, offices in Arizona and all parts of California and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so when we didn't have the supply of funds from these bigger institutions, it really, you know, rocked not only our world, but our industry's world. And say, you know, the vast, vast majority of businesses, you know, went, went out of business in our, in our industry, um, in 2009. And it was, uh, it was then I really, again, you know, got religion on a, a lot of things, but, but deeply understood the importance of portfolio performance, you know, not only with my own stuff, but with everybody's stuff. I, I often, even today had, you know, Guggenheim bankers in from New York just yesterday and spent all day with them. And one of them marveled, they're like, you worry about our numbers more than we worry about our numbers. And I said, you know, it's, it's a whole ecosystem here that everything has to piece well together for capital to flow in the right, appropriate, responsible manner. That's fantastic. You know, one thing I love about Blake's story and the truth of everybody's story who makes it big is that they all have one thing in common, and that's that they have experienced a lot of big failures. Toward the end of his tenure with the second company, Blake faced a big challenge. I asked him to dive into this in a little bit more detail. Those years really were, were very difficult. It, um, I didn't take a day off of work for three and a half years, not a Saturday nor a Sunday. And I got down at some point to, and I was, I was doing it by myself at that point. And I got down to my last $7,000 to my name. And I had a payroll two weeks later, $43,000. I mean, in those two weeks, the whole world shifted for me. I think we made $60,000 and, you know, I slowly started to build out and it, it went well after that, but it was, I was a payroll cycle away from losing everything. And most importantly, I was going to lose, you know, my infrastructure, which I knew had value. We had spent a lot of money to build up the infrastructure of the companies and, you know, software, computers and phone systems and cubicles and all these things. But, you know, the, that, that period was, was a tough period. You know, I, uh, I figure 
I'm a pretty durable guy, but there was one point where I woke up and I've cried three times in the last 30 years. You know, once when my grandmother died and once I had an older brother pass away recently. And one night in 2009, I woke up my wife at, you know, not intentionally at two o'clock in the morning. I was weeping in bed thinking I was going to lose everything. We were going to lose our house and, and everything else. And so it, it, uh, it took a toll. Um, but I, I, I also think now looking back, it was necessary, completely necessary in my evolution. And, and had I not gone through that, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have yielded the things later in life, you know, that in, in the outcome. I want to think about this for a second. When you're going through a downturn, when you're up against bankruptcy, but you're fighting through it, what are those years really like? And what lessons did Blake learn from his experience? I learned what I constantly refer to as the fundamentals. You know, I, I learned simply that revenue needs to exceed expenses. And that, you know, there, there are certain fallacies in, in building businesses that have become popular in recent years and decades of raising money and adding yourself for more revenue and more expenses and, and not running a, a profitable company is not healthy. You know, we always focus on two fundamentals in our businesses. First and most important is customer satisfaction and excellent customer journey. The second is profitability. And maybe there's a third. I'm sure I can make one up, but those are the two things we preach about. And if you ask anybody in any of these companies, what are your two core principles? Those are those two. And I've learned that, you know, it's a puzzle and your business is a puzzle and you got to get pieces right. And there's specific departments and things that are defined. You know, when I kind of think about a business as simple as it sounds and you, and it's, you know, if you have a hundred percent of the pie, you want to make a 20% margin. Okay. That leaves you 80%. Where does that 80% go? I know for me and my models that my customer acquisition costs, my marketing spend to acquire a customer should be around 20%. My cost of goods should be around 25%, right? And I think if you add that all that up, if I'm getting the math right, that's, uh, you know, 65%, then you got to run the rest of the company on 35%. And if one's teetering more or less, you know, it affects the others. But at the end of the day, those all have to equal 100%. And, you know, and then complemented with that is, is scalability of a business. If you can get the per unit profitability, right, then you focus on scalability and we gravitate towards large addressable markets. I need to, in order for me to get into a business, I need two or three big, well-funded players above me. I don't want to be the first one. You know, I, I want to kind of coast and, and, and take a lot of the momentum and learnings from well-funded businesses, you know, above me and then outmaneuver them in the trenches and on a brand level. But I could go on for hours and hours of all, all these things, but I just wanted to kind of hit the, the high, high level uh, of this, but you know, there, there's a lot of learnings that came from that. So Blake has just come out of a dark point in his life and now things are turning around. What's going on at this juncture? Honestly, I was, I was so like shell-shocked. It was May of, of 2012 and, and I went with my wife for the first time and we went to New York City and um, took a, a Memorial Day you know, weekend. And I remember walking through the park with her and I sat on this bench in this obscure part of Central Park. And not intentionally, but I, I remember that, you know, thinking, I'm like, am I really kind of out of the woods right now? Is there the, the gun is, you know, that was been pressed against my temple for the last three plus years. Is it gone? And it was such a foreign concept that it could be gone. And even today, I still have this like fear of, you know, what could go wrong. Um, but it was certainly good, you know, and it wasn't this aha moment of that you'd see in a movie of, you know, the birds are chirping and the rainbow came out and people are high-fiving and hugging you. It wasn't that, it, it wasn't that profound to where I was trying to, you know, think, okay, what's next? What's next? It was just this constant small iteration of, 
you know, what's next? How can we get stronger? Where is it going to go wrong? You know, I was up at, I, I had a call early this morning with a guy who we're doing uh, a big finance deal with. And, you know, I was worried 1 a.m. You know, I was like, how is my contract structured? Where can I get backed into a quarter? Where is somebody else going to force me into a bad decision? So that's really never turns off. I mean, it, it's, you know, you look at the surface and you try to, you know, look at it now and people are like, must be nice. Must be nice to, you know, have these certain things. And, you know, the people that know me well are like, you don't understand the price that was paid to get there. Blake was clear about what he wanted, a profitable company. But what did he do differently as a result of his experiences? So I was able to kind of, you know, revive CapNet um, and got it to a place where I was able to monetize it um, and, and got some shooter capital from that. I had this idea on a different type of finance company at the time and subsequently started that different way of underwriting deals through merchant processing and, and namely how to collect monthly payments um, securely without, without the risk of default or without as high of risk of default. I started a little company there um, and it, it actually took off. And then at the time, somebody approached me to buy that company. And it was, it was not a huge price, but it was enough of a price where it made sense to kind of monetize that and then take it, take it to the next one. All the while through CapNet, we had a big portfolio and a big database of 88,000 business owners, all of which we, we had FICO scores on and credit reports. And we would get, we would get reports on how that portfolio was performing through the credit bureaus. And we saw this very drastic dip in the average FICO score. It was over a hundred points, two point dip of our little, you know, small to medium sized business owner group. And we, at the start of that, I was thinking, man, you know, FICO score is the main driver for us to approve or decline deals. We know a lot about FICO and how to, you know, structure certain things. And, you know, keep balances on certain credit cards and, and avoid the common mishaps. We better start coaching these 88,000 people. And we did. We kind of throughout all this, 2009, 10. And we got so many thank you letters from that. I got more thank you letters than lending out billions of dollars into the, you know, into the economy and into the, these businesses. But we got more thank you letters in six months of doing this than, than you know, I had in the last, um, t you know, eight plus years, right, or more, I guess, um, of, of doing tens of thousands of transactions. And so as we gained momentum with that, I said, okay, let's see if this, this is a product we can kind of nominally charge and monetize um, and provide the service. And then it, 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 it caught on like fire. So we, we structured a new company to do that. Rave Reviews um, was, was moved through the 88,000 people and we had this tremendously positive impact on the health of these business owners. And then I realized that, you know, the average consumer could use this too. And so we spun out that company. That company grew quite big, 150 people. Um, and in 2014, I ran a process and ended up selling that company to a private equity group out of the San Francisco area. And that was kind of my first big, bigger kind of eight figure win on a company sale. Um, and so that, that kind of changed my opinion on a lot of things, but that company, remember after the deal closed, I hosted a thank you dinner for the, the principals of the private equity group. And they, you know, said, okay, Blake, now that the deal's closed, we've got to ask you some questions. And I went, you just asked me a billion questions going through the underwriting for the last six months, but sure. Shoot. How did you do this? We've looked at so many of these companies, but how did you get profitable? so quickly and how did you not raise money and i said i didn't have any other option it was this or nothing and i knew i wanted to provide a good consumer experience and i wanted to have a profitable company and and you know those two mandates forced me to kind of think outside of the traditional structure uh in that world and 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 really you know really kind of create something of value hey it's mike Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords, but what is it? 
Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. That's so clever. It's so simple. What Blake is doing here is tapping into human nature by building his connection first. His sales funnel begins with people. It begins with relationships. This is what helped Blake make an eight-figure exit, which is incredible, by the way. Next, I asked Blake to walk me through the story of how he fed this into his next venture. So, so with uh, with currency, you know, had a had a big win. Yeah. So with currency, um, this fourth company uh, sold that company right right around a hundred million. Used a lot of that capital to leverage into fight. At the time, when I was saying I was going from one discipline from finance into orthodontics, people thought I was crazy. I think Vegas odds fake my success rate at like 0.0001. It was just a foreign concept. But what people didn't know is, is I had done my homework and, and modeled out the company and the DNA between an equipment leasing company and an orthodontic company were 98% the same, you know, by design. And so currency was obviously a, a, a tremendous win. Um, it, it, it closed in January of 2017. Um, then had, you know, a little bit more kind of shooter capital to now go leverage up into Byte, which we started two months later. Byte was a, you know, three and a half year run, you know, with all the learnings and, and you know, scars and, and everything else from the prior companies. It, it uh, we had a very smooth trajectory on the surface and, and we're able to capitalize on it, but we took all the learnings from prior companies and vowed not to repeat the mistakes. I always say we've done thousands of things right and hundreds of thousands of things wrong. And one thing we never do is make the same mistake twice. So we're constantly learning. Um, but really that gave us the, the, the kind of the power and the momentum to, to jump into bite and put our heads down. And then obviously Byte sold for over a billion in cash. Um, we did not have any investors. And so just the team in itself, and there was you know, 32 people that became millionaires uh, that, that day. So we've been very liberal um, with sweat equity in our businesses and really tried to align, you know, interest and incentives and make everybody an owner. Um, but it was, it was a great exit. We, we reveled in not what it did for us Truthfully, it didn't really feel much different at all, but to see the changes in the team and what that did for them, that that's pretty addictive. You know, it keeps us coming back to do more. That's great, but I really wanted to know, how did Blake start researching for Byte? How did he figure out that this was the right course of action? This obviously wasn't in Blake's background, and yet he chooses Byte. Fortuitous story um, that that happened. It was uh, it, it, funny, funny kind of fate maybe intervened on this one. Uh, it was December of 2015, and I knew currency was kind of getting to the point where we were about to hire the investment bank and take that year-long process to sell. And I'm always when that happens with each businesses with with each business, I'm always thinking about okay, what's, what are we going to do next? So I get to work on trying to find something. It takes a while sometimes, you know, after currency, I was striking out for six months, uh, or, you know, you know, I'm sorry, not after currency, but after bite, I spent six months kind of being depressed because I couldn't find anything that we were going to jump into. We subsequently jumped into alter, but it was December, 2015. And I just met this guy kind of randomly and uh, he was a, he was an orthodontist and a professor of orthodontics orthodontics at uh, university of Southern California here. And he was from Spain. He just moved with his wife into, uh, the Los Angeles area. 
randomly came across him and and he's like i'm new in town and you know would love to go out to dinner with, with blake with you and your wife and i said okay you know it, it, certainly if i was moving to spain you know we'd want somebody to show me the ropes and so we went out to dinner with them had a nice dinner didn't really think i was ever going to see the guy again but felt like I did my duty, you know, so forth and so on. And I randomly come across them three weeks later and he looks horrible. Face is white. He was just so sad. I looked at him, I'm like, yeah, is everything okay? Oh, Blake, this thick Spanish accent, which I love, but I can't, I can't, I don't have that power to do perfect accents. You know, my wife just left me. We've been together since the seventh grade. And I'm like, what happened? She took a new job at LA and fell in love with her boss. I'm like, this happened in three weeks? But, and, and told me she was leaving me. I'm like, man, okay, here's a guy who just moved into town. You know, his heart got ripped out. I got to help him. So we brought him, we adopted him. And he was at the house all the time. We walked in and would say hi to my kids and my dog before I got a knot. And so he's spending a lot of time with us. And then, you know, one day, and he, he's a big sushi fan, loves sushi. He said, I got a new place to take you to sushi. But all right, I'll meet you. And halfway through dinner, he goes, you know, Blake, not only did my wife leave me, but I'm going to be out of business in eight to 10 years from now. I'm like, you're an orthodontist. People are going to be indefinitely needing their teeth straightened, especially teens. What do you mean? He goes, the advancements in my industry... On two parts, these invisible aligners that Invisalign is doing are game changer. They're able to move teeth in, in the mild to moderate cases, which is about 80% of his business, better than traditional wires and brackets. And software predicting movements of the teeth are now doing a better job and more accurate than, you know, call it the artist, what I do and say, oh, I think, you know, this tooth needs to move this month and that one next month. And he goes, the software is shortening the treatment times by 70% in some cases. I said, man, sorry, sucks. You know, what else can you do? He goes, not only that, but the Invisalign patent is wearing off in about 18 months from now, in October of 2017. And there's going to be a point in the not too distant future where at the 80% of these cases, a dentist can treat remotely. And I said, hold on, you're telling me the patent's wearing off, the dentist can treat remotely, and the technology from an aligner standpoint and the, and the software standpoint creates a superior result? Yes. And so the light bulb went on, you know, and, and it, it did that. I called my dad on the drive home, you know, that night I said, I know what I'm going to do next. I'm going into orthodontics. So that, that was the genesis of that. So as Blake is building up Byte and scaling up the business, you get to a point where you start to surely think, I'm done. It's time for me to pull back. But how does this realization happen? What changes? So it's interesting. There's, there's a angel you know, saying that you, know, you sell when you can, not when you want to. And I've seen entrepreneurs and people start successful businesses. And a couple things happen that we, we try to not fall into this category. And not to say it's wrong, but the owner or owners of the business, the company really becomes their identity. And they, you know, believe that it's going to grow year after year after year. Um, and they said, okay, if I can hit this revenue or this profitability, then I'll sell. We don't do that at all. We sell, we say, we're going to spend 18 months in the garage developing it. We're going to get out to market. We're going to spend the next six months, month 19 to 24. And, and we're in this right now with our friends and family. We launched the friends and family. We call it the tell us how much we suck period and working out all the bugs with the product. And then year, you know, starting month kind of 24, we start to really put our foot on the gas and scale the marketing. Month 36 or so, um, we start to, yeah, month 30 or so, or in that time period, we start to think about exiting. And so our goal is to really get out, you know, within four and a half years. 
from start to finish. And if that means we are on a, you know, $100 million run rate, so be it. If it means we're on a $300 million run rate, so be it. So, you know, we're going to work like hell to, you know, build the engine and really try to exit within a specific time period. It is a very different skill set in, 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 you know, in the United States, whereby, you know, what it takes to get from zero, call it 250 million in revenue or 300 million in revenue as we define it, to get it from 300 to a billion is a completely different team mindset, you know, discipline, et cetera, et cetera, to get it from 300 to a billion. That is not us. We would, we do not perform well because what's made us good at the first part will make us bad at the next part. And we're very sober about that. And we're very happy to, you know, hand the baton off to a bigger balance sheet, different team who are, who are specifically focused on taking what we've done and getting it, you know, three acts from there. That's amazing. I just wanted to take a moment to break down what Blake said there. Exit when you can, not when you want to. There's a real strength in knowing your limits. Blake knows his parameters, the area where he exceeds. But more importantly, he knows when to pass the torch to the right team to take the business to the next level. It's just really kind of goes to scalability. It goes to building systems and operations and regulatory and legal and da-da-da-da-da. There's a lot of different requirements. Um, and it really requires a much, you know, much different organization in terms of mindset. You know, we are, we are getting there, build it strong, build it so somebody can take what we've done and add on all the components um, that pretty much already exist in those companies. You know, when uh, Din Supply Saperona bought Byte, it's been the star pupil for them over the last few years. It's it's a uh, 50% year-over-year growth. I mean, they are so happy with the acquisition. But we couldn't have done what they've done if we simply couldn't. As, as much as I like to think for a millisecond that we could have, it, it doesn't happen, you know, because... In order for it to go to that level at that scale, you know, the amount of all these mundane things, but still very difficult, the systems and the people that need to support HR, marketing, hiring, regulatory, legal, you know, supply chain, all these things. They moved, you know, manufacturing from Oklahoma and Shanghai to Mexicali in my hometown, right? I was... Mexicali happens to, nobody knows this, be the orthodontic capital of the universe. Every big company is headquartered, like has a big presence in Mexicali. That's the only thing down there that's not farming. Um, but ironically, you know, I, we didn't have the, the balance sheet to make the proper moves in order to get it to that next level. Here, Blake piqued my curiosity, not in the numbers, but in the feeling. What did it feel like? getting to the point of being able to sell Byte for over a billion dollars, knowing what Blake came through to get there. It's still surreal. And, and to be blunt, I, I still have a difficult time connecting the dots. You know, I, I think it was kind of beat up so bad for those years that, and I got so close to recognizing I was going to lose everything, that you never lose that anymore. And so, you know, the joys of, of selling, selling Byte, you know, it didn't really hit me for a few years. It, it'll be three years this December. And I think just recently it's kind of set in that it's, it's done and it's there. And that might put me into a different category. Um, but I still kind of can create some story in my mind how it's all going to go away. <laughs> you hear this in different ages, right? Uh, uh, throughout different periods of history. Um, and it's real, you know, it's real because it, uh, it didn't set in. I mean, the company sold that day and I obviously saw, you know, bank balance go up. And when I tell you it didn't create one ounce of joy in me, um, 
I took a lot of joy from seeing my team and the stories that came from that were so great, but it didn't, it didn't move me at all. And, and thankfully, you know, I think I've been happy, um, since I was a teenager and my level of happiness throughout all this stuff has been, been a fairly appreciative and happy person. And, um, but it doesn't look like it does in the movies, right? It's not like this aha moment. Um, it, maybe it is for some people. Certainly it, it was not for me. You know, I try to focus on giving back recently, you know, be honored recently out of the blue. I was not anticipating this, but Los Angeles was philanthropist of the year, uh, for this last year. And, and, you know, so there have been these, you know, tangible things that I've seen that this is enabled, you know, in the community and, and you know, and, and provided more opportunity for others and, and things that I, I can logically you know, say that that's good and it feels good. And, but, uh, the, the emotion is still, still looking over my shoulder. Many people believe that if you have a billion dollars in your bank account, that then you will have it made. But Blake said something that I won't soon forget. When the money hit his account, he said that he felt nothing. It just goes to show that this dream of being an entrepreneur is not about the goal. It's not about the dollars in your bank account, but rather it's about the journey, the purpose, and the people you impact along the way. As we get a little closer to time, I quizzed Blake on where he's going next. What is his next big move? Right or wrong, we, we said we're going to do two last businesses. Um, and, and as I indicated, you got it earlier in, in this, we launched Alter. Um, it's Alter, A-L-T-E-R-Me.com. Um, excited about that. Excited. I think it, it has the potential to go even bigger than Byte and have really a really profound impact on the masses, which will bring and commoditize what's been somewhat esoteric and somewhat kind of reserved to, let's call it the 1% and really bring it into middle America and into the homes. And for that matter, other countries as well. Alter is in-home connected fitness, um, where we will sell you a device much like the Peloton or it's not a bike, but it's a, it's a mirror that goes into your home, but it's, it's based upon your DNA and your biometrics. So we, we give you a device that you wear much like, you know, some of these wearables, um, where it's tracking all your biometrics on a daily basis and in a real time basis, cultivating your workout and exercise, you know, regime, um, tailored specifically to you. So if it's your birthday and you maybe had it one too many glasses of wine and you didn't sleep well that night, it would recognize that and change up your workouts, maybe yoga or stretching the next day, as opposed to hitting you hard with a cardio workout and the accountability and, and based on you know, the genetic piece that, that truly is, is revolutionary. That's coming in, hired a team out of Oxford, um, in England. Um, and they really, which Oxford is the genome sequencing capital of the world. And they were really able to, you know, cultivate in, in, in which they already, already had been doing studying how your specific DNA impacts your, you know, your body responding to exercise. And so we, we assembled all that and excited to see, you know, how that's going to do. Um, we devised a new type of finance company whereby it's a hundred percent approval for everybody. doesn't matter your credit score, your age, demographic. We've flipped the math on its head. We've been doing it quietly for three years. The math is now proven, proven, proven. And excited to see how we can bring, and by the way, everybody's approved. Everybody pays the same single digit interest rate, low interest rate, the same term and the same monthly payment. So it doesn't matter if you're Elon Musk or, you know, you're, you're struggling college student who maybe missed a few credit card payments at a bad credit score. Everybody pays the same and it works. Yeah, that's a whole nother half hour, but it's, uh, it's, it's really fascinating and we've been doing it. Um, the auto industry had done it for a number of years. 
um, but we have kind of commoditized it um, through through many different industries and products. Um, so it's pretty pretty interesting um, in, in that regard. So those two, and those two will be the last. Um, I hope you know if we can get those done in the next, you know, call it three years from today. I want to get it done by October twenty twenty sixth on both companies. Um, I set that deadline, you know, that's, that's it. Come hell or high water. We're going to kind of get these done. And then I've been given a lot of thought to what maybe after that, uh, and my interests lie right now in starting a, a very specific type of school for college students from, from 13 to 20. Blake doesn't act like a visionary. In fact, I think he'd be embarrassed by the insinuation. But there's no denying that Blake's impact on the entrepreneur community is sizable. With Blake's focus, tenacity, and willingness to rise to the challenge, Blake has earned his success through long days and sleepless nights. As I'm finding out again and again, it takes a certain kind of mindset to succeed in the long game. But I guess that's what makes visionaries like Blake stand head and shoulders above the rest. And I, for one, am happy to learn this lesson. Thanks for listening. Keep following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to recommend us to a friend, we'd like that too.